Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're in this Sermon on the Mount, studying week by week the Beatitudes. Today we'll be in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a promise. Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn their sin, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who have received mercy and show mercy, those who have a pure heart, we are going to see God. If you let that soak long enough, it will change your life. If you are in Christ Jesus, one day you are going to see him face to face. Thank you. That was a quiet hallelujah. <laughs> Summer's coming, and with that comes anticipation. May and June, often very busy months for weddings, landed one here last night. Tommy and I had the privilege of serving as the officiants of that wedding. Douglas McClay, Elizabeth Farrell, riding in car seats as infants, knowing each other essentially their whole life, entering first grade together, the same school my daughter Kara was at, just good friends, really good friends. And then eventually the light goes off and he sees her in a new way. And thankfully she responds. They fall in love during the pandemic. And then last night they stood here. The reason I start there is because I never ever get tired of seeing the back doors open as the anthem builds and watching the groom see his bride come. Douglas, like all grooms, is filled with anticipation. And as those doors open and she walked down, everybody's looking at her, looking at him, looking at her, looking at him, and then he goes out. We sang a medley of hymns. Stephen Nilsson played so beautifully and Mary on the organ. It was really a beautiful night. 
And then I had the privilege of bringing the declaration of intent. Now I want you to think about his anticipation. I said, Douglas, in the beginning of a long paragraph, Douglas, will you have this woman to be your wife? I will. <laughs> he said it loud and clear, a fourth of the way through. <laughs> I said, Douglas, not yet, not yet. And then when Tommy finished the homily and made the pronouncement, as he stood here looking at his bride-to-be, Tommy was about to say, you may kiss your bride, and he, he leaned in closer and closer and closer and closer. He couldn't wait. And they kissed. And then they kissed again. And then again. My part was next. I finally said, would you please stop? He couldn't wait to see his bride. We are the bride of Christ. All of this is, is preparing us for the day that we're going to see him. And when we see him, it's going to be for all eternity. And the burdens that you feel this side of heaven, the weight you feel because of a physical struggle, a disease, the grief you feel because of a physical struggle and disease that has already taken a loved one from you, the relationships that get broken, the evil that consumes you, those things that come before your vision that captivate your eye, those worthless things cause us to recognize what we've already confessed, that we are desperately in need of a savior. But the promise is this, from Jesus' own mouth, Blessed, which means happy, not in a shallow sense, but in a rich, joyful, enduring way, M more magnificent than we can imagine. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Before we come to the table this morning, I wanna do what Paul and I have done the last several weeks, and that is to make sure we understand what these words mean. And how then do we become what Jesus is calling. Before I unpack three words specifically, heart, pure, and see, I wanna remind you that these attributes, these beatitudes are not options. These are not things that we look at and say, I'm actually pretty good at this one, but because I'm not meek at all, I'm not even gonna try. That is not how this works. These are to be the normative characteristics of a woman and a man who are abiding in Christ. So today, Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart. I wanna begin by defining heart. When the Bible speaks about the heart, it is talking about the core of the person, the, the personality, and I don't mean the personality like introvert versus extrovert, outgoing versus shy. It's the interior of the individual, the core of the individual which makes up the intellect, the will, and the emotions. It incorporates your past, your history, that's the heart. So when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's not just talking about emotions. It's not separating the head and the heart. It's talking about all of it. It's the core of who we are. So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's talking about the soul of the person, the core of the person. Let's look now at the word pure. 
This is a very important word to understand in regards to how it would have been received. Immediately when we think of pure, we think of cleansing, we think of cleaning, and that's an appropriate place for us to go. When we hear the phrase clean or pure, we begin to think about the ways in which God tells us through his word that only those who are clean, only those who are pure will be with him. Take the blue pew Bible in front of you or the Bible that you brought and turn with me to Psalm 24. This Psalm is one that you might recognize as one that we use often on Palm Sundays in our liturgy because at the end of this Psalm, it says, who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. But what I wanna focus on for a few moments is the words that come before that in Psalm 24. Because this psalm answers a question, and the question is, who's gonna ascend to be with the Lord? Who is it gonna be? And listen to what the psalmist writes. Verse three of Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Most believe this is what Jesus was referring to in this beatitude. Who will ascend? Verse four, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. So how do we have a heart like this? This is important because we don't start with a pure heart. Jeremiah 17, nine describes all mankind's hearts. The prophet said this, the heart is deceitful. That interior, your thoughts, your feelings, your will, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Today, if you come in here thinking you perfectly understand your heart, you are foolish. You do not. We cannot. Matthew 15, Jesus teaching, and this is recorded by Matthew, the same one who records the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 18 and 19 to Matthew 15 says this, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. This is the word of God describing the heart. In Romans chapter one, turn there with me if you have your Bible. Beginning at verse 19, Paul writes this. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Paul is now referring to general revelation, creation. What we can see tells us that someone, something had to make this. Paul writes, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, that's an important word for sight, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, mankind, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This isn't a new problem. It's the problem from the beginning. 
The moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God and obeyed the temptation of the serpent, they ate, and the moment they ate, sin entered in. Their hearts became dead towards God. And that condition has been passed on to all of us and will to every human being until the last has been saved. But the good news is this. God enters in. The first question God asks in the Bible is, where are you? Speaking to Adam. Adam says, "Ah, we were afraid because we were naked, so we hid. God's second question, who told you you were naked? Third question from God, have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to? Adam, the woman you put here with me, blame. And what that signified was the busted relationship between man and woman, between man and man, between humanity, the broken relationship between God and man, the broken relationship between God, I'm sorry, with man and himself. Immediately when they sinned, they went to make coverings for themselves. Those were not satisfactory, so God would himself make coverings, pointing to the coming of Christ. Ezekiel The prophet that you might not be as familiar with speaks this way of what takes place. Ezekiel 36, verses 24, listen to this. God speaks, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. What an incredible promise. And I will give you a new heart. I, God, will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, that's his word, and be careful to obey my rules. You will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. If you're in Christ, this has already happened to you. You've been given a new heart. Today may be the day if you're here and you've yet to trust Jesus that you are receiving that new heart. Paul says it in a very similar way in 2 Corinthians 5, the very first verse I ever memorized. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It doesn't mean the old is just cleaned up a little bit and it's a little bit more moral version of the former self. It's a brand new being. That's why John's gospel says that we are born again. We're given a new heart. I'm gonna say something that I'm gonna be very quick with, so stay stay with me, please. The new heart that we receive is about justification. It is a one-time act. It is legal. It is our heart being legally made new, alive in Christ. But our hearts this side of heaven continue to struggle with allegiance. That's why every Sunday, We have public confession. That's why every day believers confess sin. So we have a heart that has already been made new. 
We have a heart that is being made cleaned. That's why David, who we are told was a man after God's own heart, would pray in Psalm 51 after his horrendous sin of adultery and murder. His heart polluted by lust and so many other things. He cries out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then what does he pray later in that Psalm? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We have a heart that is legally right before God because of justification. We have a heart that's being made clean. That's called sanctification. And one day we will have a heart that is only pure in glorification. So when Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, he was focusing on this idea of cleansing but that wasn't the only thing. He was also focusing on commitment. The word pure in the Greek here means something very substantial. It means to be undivided. It means that if something is pure, it is 100% pure. There are no additives. There's nothing mixed with it. It is single. It is singular in its focus. So when the promise comes that blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, sight is actually a part of the first part of the beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does that mean? It means blessed are those who have their eyes fixed completely on Christ. They are not a people or an individual who is divided in their loyalties. We would call that hypocrisy. They are a people whose heart is pure, meaning that they are single-minded. The theologian Tasker brilliantly said this, the pure in heart are the single-minded. Those who are free from the tyranny of a divided self. I want to say that again. The pure in heart are those that are single-minded, those who are free from the tyranny of a divided self. A divided self, tyranny of a divided self. Tyranny means oppression. We live in a culture where the moment we wake up, we receive a herd of wild animals rushing at us, telling us who we should be. In all of your secondary identities, and everything beyond primary identity is beloved daughter, beloved son of the living God is secondary. Father is secondary. Husband is secondary. Pastor is secondary. Everything is secondary. But those things scream and shout at us. 
in hopes by the evil one that they will divide our allegiance. And what Jesus is saying is the pure in heart are those who are singly minded, focused on me. Years ago, over 20 years ago, Dr. Chap Clark wrote a book called Hurt. And the book was describing what he saw in high school students. He spent six months to a year as a student teacher in a school in California. He was quite, quite distant from that age group now in his 50s, but he was observing things that were changing in the culture, and he didn't know what it was. So sitting in schools day after day, he began to discern what it was, and it was this, that these high school students moving from one class to the next would essentially change who they were depending on who was in the next class. He called it living in layers. I read that book just as I moved to Dallas. Chap was a friend. We spoke at different events together. And when I read it, I said, that's it. That's what I've been seeing. It's the high school student that on Sunday morning can be lifting her hands in praise, but knowing even later that night she's gonna be engaged in something she shouldn't be. Or the boy who's so committed to being on the mission trip only to attend something that is so far from a mission trip, the very night he returns. Living in layers, these masks began to make them feel as if in that moment they were authentic. In that layer, they were authentic. A secondary identity, even shifting between class periods, was a reality in their life. Now some of you are like, well that's just called putting on a mask. That's not any different than what we did. It actually is a little bit different but the essence is the same. What mask did you put on today? What mask did you put on coming into this place? What mask are you tempted to put on every day and you might not even know? In fact, you don't know because it has to do with the heart and the heart can be so deceptive. Chuck Swindoll years ago, long, long time ago, in the Rocky Mountains stood up to speak at a large gathering when he came into the pulpit, he had on a plastic mask that covered his whole face. And you can imagine what the crowd did. They laughed and he didn't take it off. He continued to speak and as he did, the laughter got louder. Finally, he took it off and this is what he said. It's a funny thing when we wear literal masks, nobody is fooled. But how easy it is to wear invisible ones and fake people out by the hundreds. Believers in Christ, when we do that, we're doing the exact same thing that Adam and Eve did. We are making our own clothing to cover what we're afraid others will see. It was in our confession of sin, and it was in the songs that we were singing. Being pure in heart is being singularly focused on Christ. But here's the problem. We can work very hard to have our eyes fixed singularly on Jesus, but then so many things begin to come into that orbit of our sight. You know what I mean? So many things. One example of that would be this. If I'm talking to somebody after the service, it could be light 
or it could be heavy. But I'm trying very hard to keep my eyes fixed on them when I'm noticing people moving all around me. Have you ever been talking to somebody and you suddenly realize they're not looking at you? They're looking at all those people who are passing? That's the same thing. We are to have this singular focus on Jesus as we move in and out of every environment. Another example would be this. A boy asks a girl to a dance. He thinks she's beautiful. Other people think she's beautiful. They begin to dance. What he wanted to happen is happening. He's dancing with her. But as he's dancing with her, he hears her finally say, look at me. He's startled. He's startled by the reality that he isn't looking at her. He's looking at all the people who are looking at him, looking at her. He's missing the moment he had longed for. I am that man, and those words were from my wife. The problem is this. I've done the same thing in the church so often. Instead of just having my eyes singularly focused on Jesus, they can become so distracted by so many good things that the vision is blurred and Jesus is distant in my view. But here's how gracious he is. Through his word and spirit, he says, look at me. And when he does, I'm reminded that that's what matters most. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So what does the word see mean? Before we come to the table, I want you to hear this. The word see is a future indicative. It is a future continuous tense. And here's what that means. Jesus is saying to those listening, and this is how they would have heard it, those who are pure in heart, they shall be continuously seeing God for themselves. Those who are pure in heart, to be pure in heart, all the other beatitudes have to exist, beginning with porn spirit. Those who are pure in heart, who are pure in heart, they shall be continuously seeing God for themselves. With this is an aspect of the already and the not yet. This side of heaven, we see God at work. We see God in his scriptures, specific revelation. We see God in creation. We see God as the Holy Spirit lives in one another, but not perfectly. We see God in the mystery of this sacrament. We see God all over, but not yet fully. One day, all who are in Christ for all eternity, we're going to see him with perfect vision. And when we see him, we're gonna be overwhelmed beyond what we can comprehend and even imagine today that there in our presence is the one who is Jesus, our Savior, who was pure in 
heart. Completely clean. No stain. Not even a wrong thought ever in his life. And there, that clean, righteous, perfect Savior, pure in heart, the one who was singly focused on the glory of his Father, there he lives. And we will remember what he did that we might live, that his perfect, pure heart burst. It burst when he was buried underneath the wrath of God, the Father, and our sin. The spear went into his side. A mixture of blood and water came out, a sign that he truly died from a broken heart. You're going to see him. And if you are in him, you've rested and received him. Today, this sacrament is a reminder for you. And it is one that you don't clean yourself up for to come to. It's one you come at his invitation. If you're here and you're new today, this is not a Presbyterian table or a PCPC table, but it is the Lord's table. And it is only for those who have trusted in Jesus. So today, if in your heart you know you've not rested and received Jesus alone, we encourage you to stay in your seat. Don't come forward to partake of these elements, for the word of God tells us you would eat and drink judgment on yourself. But if today you long for salvation, you long to know that I know him. Simply pray as this unfolds. Jesus, I am a sinner. I need a savior and you're the one, the only one. Confess your sins to him and receive him. And then come and tell Tommy or me or one of the elders who will be in the corners to pray with whoever wants to pray. This meal is meant to encourage us with the victory that is ours in Christ. Let's prepare to come to the table. Would you please stand?